You can be seated. I just want to say it's great to have Katie Rito back. She's been working all summer at camp, and it's nice to have you home, Katie. Welcome. <clears throat> but your mom and dad missed you. They wandered around, like, wondering what to do. We saw them with this distant look in their eyes. They were just lost without you, Katie. Lost. So it's gl we're glad you're here for their sake. But, but um, this morning, um, let's... Actually, I need two strong volunteers to bring this table over to here. And you can do that right now while I'm talking. Thank you. So it's going to take two. That's not a one-person job. That's a two-person job, or it'll be a mess. So this morning, we're going to look at the Bible. And you know, we study the Bible differently. It's different than any other book, because the Bible is the only book that you study in order to become like the one who wrote it. We seek to imitate its author. We don't study it to learn more. We don't study it just to relax, although I certainly do. Thank you, guys, very much. We, uh, we study the Bible to become like the one who wrote it. So this morning, I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4. And if you would turn in your Bibles there, we'll be there in a moment. We've been going through this summer a series that I'm calling Breaking Rejection. We're hammering away at this thing that has really taken root, I believe, in many of our hearts, and it's time to get rid of it. And I'm actually thinking and thinking that today might be an important day for some of us, a day of breakthrough. So it's a big one today. Just prepare you and warn you ahead of time. You know, we've learned that rejection is uh, something that every one of us face you know, and there's a difference between an act of rejection and then the spirit of rejection. All of us experience acts of rejection. Every one of us, we've been rejected for something that we've done. You know, something we've done has been rejected. Or even who we are has been rejected at times by others. We've experienced that too. So we've learned, though, that there's a difference between getting hit, if you will, by those different acts of rejection and then the spirit of rejection. The spirit of rejection is actually demonic, and it uses those acts of rejection as a way to gain access into our hearts and bring destruction and bring us down and, and really bring ruin in our lives and to our relationships. And so we've been hammering away at this thing, and I find that rejection is... Well, let me ask you this question. What's your earliest memory your earliest memory of experiencing rejection? Just, you don't have to answer. I'm not asking it. It's a rhetorical question, but you think through it. What's your earliest memory of experiencing rejection? Some of you would say, yeah, I can remember, you know, when I was five, this happened, or, you know, what you remember specific events. But then some of us, have a completely different way of answering that question. Some say, yeah, I can remember certain events. Others of us would say, you know, it feels like rejection's been like a theme in my whole life. Like it's not just one or two events that have happened. It's, it's this theme that I, I feel like I've had since the very beginning. It goes all the way back. 
I really want you to find freedom today. I really do. Rejection becomes insidious. It's, it's, I mean, let me give you an example. Fresh, from my own life, okay? Yesterday, yesterday, my wife wants potato salad to go with our steak. That's a simple thing. So I am husband of the year, of course, and so I go ahead to make my wife potato salad, right? The potatoes, fix them, cut them all up, put them in the pot, get them cooking. And what do I do? I get talking. My sister and brother-in-law are here. It's great to have them. We're chatting and having a good time. And next thing I know, Karis goes, how long have these potatoes been on the oven, been on the stove? A long time. So now we have, so now we don't have potato salad. We have mashed potatoes, right? You know what? My wife uh, is allowed to be disappointed about that. That's normal. That's not a sin for her to be disappointed that uh, she wanted a potato salad, she got mashed potatoes instead, right? But what's my reaction? You know what my reaction was? <laughs> she is so unthankful. I mean, come on, there's a lot of wives that would love to have a husband make potato salad for them. My wife complains. Mashed potatoes, they're still potatoes. And I cop an attitude. You know what that is? Rejection. I responded to my wife out of rejection. I turned a simple faux pas into a deal. And see, the problem is when rejection is allowed to sit in my soul, that one event gets added on to the next time, the next time I burn potatoes, the next time I mow the lawn wrong, the next time I say something wrong, the next time that this falls apart, the next time, and it adds up and it builds up and next thing you know, our relationship's completely destroyed. Happens all the time, my friends. That's why this is so important. Because that scenario repeats itself over and over and over and over again. In our marriages, our homes, our workplaces, our church, your scout troop, school, you name it. Every place you have, hum you have relationships with people, you're going to find that scenario repeating itself over and over and over again. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're breaking. Understand? You're never going to avoid moments of rejection. I'm sorry, I'll burn the potatoes again and my wife will be disappointed again. That's gonna happen over and over and over again. That's not the problem. It's how I react to it that's the problem. That's what we're talking about follow? For us, for the human race, rejection goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to our very beginning. You know the story. God creates two perfect people, Adam and Eve, and places them in a perfect place called the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, God places these two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And God tells them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why would God do that? God, that doesn't seem fair. Wait a second, if you want to set us up for success, then why would you put that tree in the middle of the garden and tell us not to eat from it? Surely God knew we would. Because God wants your love. Love has to be a choice. You have to be free to choose it. He can't force your love. 
Not only that, love that goes unchallenged isn't very deep. So God places the tree. The tree wasn't meant to destroy their love. It was meant to develop it. And the fateful day came when Adam and Eve made their choice. They chose to listen to Satan's lie instead of God's word, and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden fruit. And then God was faced with a very difficult decision. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. It says, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, God drove the man out. He didn't lead him out. He didn't encourage him to leave. He drove the man out of the garden. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth that guard the way to the tree of life. Wow. Okay, um, if you were a parent this morning, if your kid made one mistake, would you kick him out of the house? Like one mistake, like one thing, you know? And suddenly you send him to the curb with their suitcase, pack him and kick him out. Then you change the locks on the door. There's a side, there's a, 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 an angle on this story that feels very much like rejection as though the punishment doesn't fit the crime. One bite, God, one stinking bite. And then you kick him out of the garden forever and ever. And then you lock the door behind him and you put a flaming sword. Come on, one bite, God. See that? And rejection begins to take root in the human soul. We instinctively know that we belong back in the center of that garden, but we're not there anymore. And so I have a choice. I can either see life through the lens of rejection or see rejection through the lens of life. We see life through the lens of rejection. And the lens of rejection is always self-centered. Always self-centered. So this is not fair. This is not right. This doesn't seem right. One, one time, God. One. One. Right? The lens of rejection. But wait a second. When I see this through the lens of life, I discover that God wasn't really rejecting them. He was protecting them. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God was protecting. This was an act of severe mercy. God knew that if Adam had eaten from the tree of life, he would then be living forever in a cursed state. I mean, if Adam had eaten from the tree of life, he'd still be alive today. He'd still be walking the planet today. Right? Can you imagine? Now listen, every sickness, every ill that you and I experience, we live now in a cursed world because of this first sin. Every one of our ills traces its root back to that first sin. Can you imagine having cancer forever? Or being sentenced to a wheelchair forever, right? Even simple things, you wake up with a zit, you're like, I better get used to that. <laughs> Do that for a while, right? I mean, you say, wow, this was an act of mercy on God's part to 
prevent Adam from eating from the tree of life and then living forever in a cursed, fallen state. You see how the two different lenses give two different perspectives on the same event? The lens of rejection sees this selfishly, sees it as though God has been unfair, one wrong, God. But the lens of life looks at it and sees the heart of God, the mercy of God, where he said, I love you too much to leave you cursed like that for eternity. I'm going to block the way to the tree of life and prevent you from eating that fruit. That's the wonderful heart of our God. So then rejection continues its evil rise in the heart of man. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And we go to Genesis chapter 4. And let's read. I'm going to read a good portion of this this morning and so that we can get an understanding for this at work in Cain's life in particular. So Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, catch this, my friend, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, Hey, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on earth. Cain said to the Lord, Oh, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain. Remember that. God put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. Now there's a couple of things that you see in this text right away. First, notice that God, there's, it's not apparent that God tells them how or what kind of offering to bring. 
true. There's no instructions here where God says, hey, I'd like you to do it this way. So what's God doing? Is he leaving them just to guess? I don't believe so. I believe that what we see is here is a free will offering. It's just an act of worship. Jesus said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also, right? So you're, the way that you worship and how you worship, the way that you give and how you give reveals a lot about your heart. Well, what do these two brothers, what does their offering, their free will offering to God, what does that demonstrate about their hearts? Well, Cain gave some. You know, he threw a couple bucks in the plate. It's good. Abel, on the other hand, gave fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. You see the difference? Cain gave to God. Abel loved God. And obviously, God received Abel's offering. I mean, he, God loves our worship from a, from a heart that desires him. Man, that turns him on. Cain recognizes that his offering is not acceptable. And so what does Cain do? Cain has an opportunity there, doesn't he, to repent? He has an opportunity there to go, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I, I just was thoughtless. God, let me hear. I bring to you, right? He could have. And yet he didn't do that, did he? He became angry. His face became downcast, sour. And then God says to Cain, I believe God's loving Cain in these words. He says, Cain, Cain, buddy, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you. You must master it. You must master it, Cain. What does Cain do? Well, when you're given to the spirit of rejection, like I said, you see life through the lens of rejection. You see it selfishly. You don't think of others. You think of how it all impacts you. And so rejection tears relationships apart. It puts you in competition with others, not in unity with others. And so Cain eliminates the competition. If Abel's out of the way, my offering's the only one God has to receive, so. See you, Abel. And then God comes to Cain. Cain, where's your brother? Again, it's another opportunity for Cain to go, God, I blew it. I was so wrong, God, so wrong. Please forgive me. Instead, what does Cain do? Am I my brother's keeper? Was it my turn to babysit him? Cops an attitude with God. And then God says to Cain, Cain, you're going to be a restless wanderer on the earth. Now, that's important. God's not, God is not cursing Cain. You're a restless wanderer. It's much more the sense that Cain, Remember, it all goes back to that statement. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. As long as Cain doesn't master it, Cain sentences himself to being a restless wanderer on the earth all his days. But at any given moment, Cain could have repented. At any given moment, Cain could have turned around. God, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I blew it. God, but he didn't. 
So the message is, as long as you give in to that sin that's crouching at your door and you don't master it, you are sentencing yourself to being a restless wanderer on the earth. Restless wanderer means, the Hebrew word there, it means intense grief. It's the idea, you know, Middle Eastern people, they really know how to grieve, man. They, they know how to put on a funeral. So when they're grieving, it's wailing and weeping and gnashing teeth and, you know, that's the picture. Restless wanderer. Oh, he's unsettled. He'll always be unsettled. Always feel like there's something missing. Always feel like, you know, I wake up in the morning and I'm just shy. You know, always that sense. Restless wanderer. I wonder, is that you? Do you have that feeling like you should be someplace? You should, like there's something else. Like you're missing it. The world is zipping by and you're kind of stuck. Like you're missing it. That's the curse of Cain. Restless wanderers, all of us, desperately trying to somehow settle our souls on our own. Never doing it. So what does Cain do? Well, so Cain complains again. Again, rather than say, oh God, I don't want to be a restless wanderer my whole life. I repent of my sin. God, I'm so sorry. Instead, no, Cain complains. God, that's too much. I can't bear it. And God, in his mercy, puts a mark on Cain. Do you see that? We don't know what that mark was, but we do know that the word used for mark there is the same Hebrew word that's used in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, during the Passover, when Israel is in Egypt, and it's the night of Passover when the death angel was coming through and killing the firstborn. And God instructed the Israelites to take the blood of the Passover lamb and put, the, put it on the doorposts of their home to literally mark their home and that anyone behind that blood would be safe from the death angel as it passed by. That same word that's used to mark the frame of their home is used here, God marked Cain in essence, protecting Cain. Do you see the love of God in that? Friends, Cain is a cold-blooded murderer. Get that, right? Murderer. That guy deserves everything he gets, does he not? And yet God goes, Cain, whatever the mark was, and he marks him, Cain, I'm going I'm to see to it that Man, if anybody touches you, they got to answer to me for that, Cain. Right? God's blessing is on Cain's life. God's protecting Cain, even though he doesn't deserve it. He's protecting him. And yet, does Cain ever see it? Can Cain ever see the blessing, the hand of God in his life? No. Restless wanderer. He's got to go back to that first spot, doesn't he? Sin crouching at the door. He's got to go back there. He's got to repent. He's got to get that fixed. He's got to get that settled. And as long as he doesn't, restless wanderer, everyone's against me. God protects him. And so Cain does what you and I do. When we're restless, he does his very best to try to settle, to try to quell that voice down in his soul. He quells it by, well, 
Some people build families, some people build businesses, some people build churches, some people build ministries, they get busy volunteering here and there and everywhere. Cain built a city. That'll do it. That'll settle my restless heart. I'll just build a city. But does that do it? No. No. So he names the city Enoch, and that's another key, I believe. The word Enoch, he names his first son Enoch. It means jaw or roof of the mouth. You know, when you're really thirsty, yeah, you get pasty, doesn't it? Your mouth, tongue gets thick. You could really use a good drink to, to, you know, to wet the whistle, right? I think they came, restless wanderer, unsettled, attempting his best in his own strength to settle his heart, but he can't. I'll kill my brother? Whoa, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> okay, I'm going to build a city? That didn't work out. I'm going to get married? That didn't work out so well. Firstborn son, Enoch. I could use a good drink. I am thirsty for something to settle this restlessness in my soul. How about you? As long as I listen to the voice of rejection, I will never feel settled. I will always feel as though the world is against me and others are against me. Even God is against me. I will fail to see the blessing and the protection of God, even in my failures. And that brings me to this. They say that the human being is made up of three parts. We have uh, body and soul and spirit. Did I get the buckets right? Yes. Body, soul, and spirit. <clears throat> so I'll represent each one of those parts of our being with these three buckets. And each one of these parts of our being has a distinct set of needs, which we'll call thirsts. The body has its own set of thirsts physical thirsts. It needs food. It, it needs water. It needs uh, sex is a thirst. Um, leisure, rest, things that the body, even exercise, although some of us refuse to give the body that, but it needs exercise. It needs it, right? Legitimate thirsts in their own place, in their own time, except this, if my whole life is focused on satisfying my bodily thirsts, do I ever get satisfied? The Bible says in Proverbs that death and destruction are never satisfied, neither is the human eye. Everything my eye sees, it wants. Anything that sparkles, anything that tantalizes, I just gotta have that. So-and-so has a better this, I better have that. They have that, I better have... I. I want, I want, my eyes always want what they see. And if I spend my life constantly trying to satisfy what I see, I'll never be satisfied. That's why that explains why a movie star would commit suicide or why Tiger Woods would have multiple affairs on his supermodel wife. Because as long as you are living to satisfy your bodily thirsts, you'll never be satisfied because the body 
leaks. This bucket leaks. It's got a hole in it. It will never be satisfied. You can keep filling it and filling it and filling it. The soul also has its own set of needs. The soul bucket. Slightly deeper needs, but it needs nonetheless thirsts. The soul thirsts for things like love. The soul thirsts for meaning and purpose. The soul wants uh, intimacy. The soul uh, wants peace. Some of the things that the body longs for, thirsts for, the soul also thirsts for, but just on a deeper level, right? The body, the body wants, um, the body wants sex. The soul is thirsting for intimacy, right? The body wants leisure. The soul just says, "I'd like to have some peace." So the soul has its own set of needs, does it not? And we try to fill the soul. We try to satisfy the thirst of the soul with a lot of good things. You know, if I just get married, then uh, that'll satisfy that. Or if we just have kids, that'll, that'll fix that. Or if I just had a better job, a more fulfilling career, that'll, that'll do it, right? Maybe different church. This church isn't quite cutting it for me. I, maybe a new church will do it. Does that do it? doesn't guys why soul has a hole in it you can move a different church every other week you still got to take you there you're going to be just as miserable there as you are here you know you you can get a divorce and try on a new spouse and be just as miserable in the new marriage as you were the old one doesn't satisfy See, Cain spent his whole life trying to satisfy the body and the soul. I'll murder my brother. That'll, that'll fix the problem I have. Uh, no, colossal mistake. Well, build a city. Then I'll feel better if I build a city. No. How about a good wife? Good woman? Nope. And so I'm thirsty. Enoch, his son, Enoch. I know people that do the same thing. Single people think if I just get married, I'm not going to do it. Married people think if I just had a different spouse, if I married somebody differently, it'd be better. No. You think, you know, if I just had that person's kids, then my household would be better. Kids, I know it's shocking, but sometimes your parents actually think that. They wish you were somebody else's kid. Surprising. But you know what we learn, kids? I learned that I love you, and I wouldn't be happy with somebody else's kids either. The issue isn't you. The issue's me. <laughs> or you think if I had a different job, that'll do it. If I just had his job, if I just had her paycheck, if I just had that body, you know, if I had a beach body, it would be all better, right? If I had a, you name it, fill in the blank, right? restless wanderers all of us restless wanderers what's the answer well my spirit the spirit is altogether different than my body and my soul the spirit is that part of me that lasts forever and ever and ever 
You know, the day is going to come when my body, when my heart, my physical heart stops beating and my body conks out like an old car on the side of the road. You're literally going to have to tow me to my final resting place. True? The body goes. And in that moment, my soul also goes. My soul will rest in peace, we say. And any unfinished business I had in my life will be exactly that, unfinished. And how much money I made and what career I had and who I was with, none of that's really going to matter at that point. The soul goes with the body, gone. But my spirit will last for all of eternity in one of two states. It will either be dead or it will be alive. See, the Bible defines death differently than we do. The Bible defines death as being separated from God. God is good. And every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. And so that means that every single one of us living on this planet enjoys God's goodness to one degree or another. You're sitting in a comfortable chair, God's good. You got a full belly, God's good. Had a good night's sleep, God's good. You got friends, God's good. You're enjoying goodness, enjoying God's good and perfect gifts. All of us do, even the worst among us enjoy God's good and perfect gifts. But hell is the one place where God says, peace out, and he leaves the building, and with him, all of his goodness. Can you imagine a place where there is literally nothing good? You and I really can't imagine that because we've never known anything other than this, where even on our worst days, there's something I could be thankful for. Can you imagine a place where there's literally nothing to be thankful for? Nothing good. That's hell. God is, his absence, he's, he's pulled away. That's what it means to be dead. Many people, their spirit will remain dead for all of eternity, separated from anything good. Or my spirit will be alive, which means it will enjoy the glory and the presence and the union and communion and the intimacy with my Savior forever and ever and ever. Either dead or alive, my spirit. But the spirit, you see, is unlike my body and my soul in that the spirit has its own thirst. It thirsts for God and God alone. The only thing it thirsts for, the only thing it wants, one thing, God, it's all it wants. But the thirst of the spirit is much quieter than the other two. The other two, talk about the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. Man, are these squeaky wheels, are they not? constantly crying out for attention. Feel me, feel me, feel me, feel me. The spirit, however, is quiet. Quiet. And you know what God does in his mercy? I call it his severe mercy. God in his severe mercy allows you and I to experience very hurtful things in our body and our soul. He allows you to wake up one morning with a marriage that's falling apart. He allows you to get 
terribly sick. He allows you, allows you to show up at work one morning and get fired without notice. He allows your, you name it, some dream, some hope you had based in your body, your soul, to get shattered, shattered. But in his severe mercy, he allows that to happen so that you can discover, I have a deeper thirst. It's in that moment when these two shatter that I discover my spirit. I never saw it before. I was too busy with these other two things. And the beautiful thing about my spirit is once the Lord fills it with himself, it doesn't leak. You know? No leaking. And look at this. If my life is ordered properly, let me empty these out. If my life is ordered properly, when my spirit is full, all of me's full. And I don't leak. You know the cool thing about the spirit? One more thing. It doesn't leak, but it does overflow. So the love that I enjoy from my God, I can spill onto you. The joy that I enjoy from God, I can spill onto you. The peace that I enjoy in the Lord, you get to see, you get to, you get splashed sometimes from that, right? I don't leak, but I do overflow the spirit. Friends, until the spirit is full, restless wanderers, all of us. And God in his severe mercy will allow the body and the soul to leave you empty in order to recognize that you have this spirit that desperately needs him. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Our church's theme verse, John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are thirsty. I'll give you a drink. And from out of you will flow rivers of living water. You'll overflow, right? We're all thirsty. So, I want to invite you this morning to come to this sacred place and to ask for God to fill to confess Lord I, I've been I thought I was full because you know I have a good family and nice kids and a good job and I thought I was full but boy I'm empty I need you to fill the depths of my being with your presence because only you can satisfy that Jesus you know, you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. But I pray that you don't actually ever have to come to that point, because that's a really low point. <laughs> so let's begin now simply cultivating the fact that Jesus is all I need. 
and ask him to fill and to satisfy my spirit. Every time that God, uh, well, yeah, let's pray. Lord, uh, God, I know that um, I look around in my life and there are so many disappointments, so many disappointments. And like Cain, at times sentenced myself to restless wandering, trying desperately to satisfy that thirst and never really doing it. And so now, Lord, I come to you and I ask you to fill the deepest part of my soul with yourself. I said earlier, Jesus, to get lost in you means I don't know where I'm going, but I know who I'm going with. And that's enough, Jesus. I'm content with that. So I'm just going to open up the altar, and Josh and Karis are going to lead us in this song. And if you want to come as we sing, please feel free to do so. And we can pray together and process this together. And uh, just let the Lord do his work.